Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. It is Sunday, July 10th. I'm Dmitry Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. We're back tonight with Michael Kaufman, one of the foremost experts on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Now, Mike, we were off for the last two weeks due to Independence Day holiday here in the United States. Uh, a lot has happened in those last two weeks. The Russians have now taken Lugansk Oblast, one of the two regions making up the Donbass. And uh, they, seem, they seem to have announced an operational pause, although there's some questions about that. I saw reporting from Ukrainian side saying that the Russians have enacted an operational pause, ensued for uh, studies of war, said the same. Uh, in looking at this more closely, I haven't seen a lot of evidence for it other than some reporting from MOD saying that they're allowing units in the Donbass that have just completed taking Lysychansk uh, to rest and restore combat effectiveness. What are you seeing on that front? Um, is, is there an actual operational pause and how extensive it is? Yeah, thanks, Adrian. And thanks for having me back. Um, I'm, I'm not really buying that story at all because, first of all, Putin only announced an operational pause for the units involved in taking Severodonetsk and Lysychansk which is two groupings of forces involved in the eastern side of the offensive. Uh, the Russian force is trying to push from Izum northwest of Slavansk, are still trying to make an advance. And in general, what you're really seeing is just a consolidation of territory taking. Russian forces regrouping, trying to set themselves up for an offensive against the next Ukrainian defensive line, which is uh, Severus down to Bakhmut. And the beginning of open artillery fire on Slavansk itself. So it's not really an operational pause in any way that kind of makes sense from my point of view. Just a consolidation and a regrouping of forces and a pulling up of reserves, which is taking place. But Russian forces writ large are not taking a break. They are probably going to maybe take a week or two to consolidate, pull up the units they need, and they're going to prosecute an offensive against a very large set piece battle. Which was going to involve Slavansk and Kramatorsk, which is the next phase of this offensive. Now, you, you've you've been saying for quite some time that that eventually they will need an operational pause, right? They've lost too many forces. They've lost a lot of their uh, combat vehicles, uh, particularly infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, and you know, if this is not it, when do you think they'll take it, or do you think that they'll just continue plowing through without one and? Um, continuing to lose efficacy of, of their combat force. Depends on how this next battle goes. So I can see a couple different variations of it now. I have been probably not particularly judicious in voicing some sentiments that I was skeptical they could take Savance, to be perfectly honest. That is sentiment, not a prediction. And I have very little to go off on in making a judgment. And in thinking through kind of the evidence and the correlation of forces, the truth is that I can probably come up with a couple of different scenarios, one of which is that over the course of several months of fighting, you know, Russian forces, for whatever reason, they're not able to take Slavansk Kramatorsk, that uh, they are able to take it, given degradation on the Ukrainian side and the attrition in their forces, or that this is a fight that drags on for many months, well into the fall, and... Uh, we see incremental gains or a dynamic battlefield with, with fitful trade of territory over the course of several months. So uh, my basic take is looking at what's happened since Severodonetsk and Lysychansk is that probably if the Russian forces push hard, 
they're going to need a real operational pause later on this fall. But that is just kind of, you know, one analyst prediction. And uh, it's a best guesstimate. Uh, this could this could be a fight that drags on over the summer and well into the fall. But the set piece battle is very clear from my point of view. And it's going to be Savansk and it's going to be Kamatorz. And who wins that fight to me right now is very indeterminate. And I'm not going to make a prediction on that. And I probably shouldn't have been voicing optimistic sentiments to begin with. So that's the best I can say at this stage. Now, the longer this drags on, you know, I'm reminded of a lot of mud experts that we had long before the war started saying that the Russians wouldn't be able to fight through in the spring with uh, Rasputin's uh, in uh, the weather in, in Ukraine. You know, obviously that didn't deter them. Is there any concerns around weather? Um, is it going to make it harder for them as this drags on potentially into the winter months? Um, or do you think it's, it's going to be a non-issue? So definitely could, but the truth is, I've seen basically two things. One, there's a war of attrition. This has been a war driven by artillery fires primarily, and more than likely they're going to begin barraging Savansk, which they already have uh, started to in the past week. And it's going to be a war where most units tend to stick to the roads just because uh, Russian military lacks the force capacity for major offensive operations. And they generally like to dismount infantry to operate outside of roads. So that kind of delimits a bit how, how they've been trying to conduct these advances. So I think the weather is a factor, but it's not as big a factor just because of how both sides are constrained in terms of force availability. The big question is, how is the Russian military going to try to advance as they try to set up two pincers, essentially they're going in from the north from Zoom, and they're going to try to squeeze in from the east. First, they're going to counter the Ukrainian line of defense, which is running from Severs to Bahmut. Let's say hypothetically that that holds for a bit, and then it doesn't, just as one iteration, one potential iteration of how of how this conflict can advance. Then they will eventually try to press in towards Slavyansk. And the big question is whether or not these various volunteer units they put together, volunteer battalions, which are essentially reserve battalions, if they have enough schlitz in them to try to make these kind of advances or how the situation plays out. Um, I'm, I'm happy to take more follow-ups on that, but I'm just going to say that in the Donbass, the situation as it is now is a preparation phase for a set-piece battle over Slavansk and Kramatorsk which is likely going to be one of the main battles of this year. And that's the best I can say without making you know any predictions regarding the outcome because it's a fool's errand. And sometimes I voice sentiments in this regard where I don't even listen to my own advice, but just being frank on that subject. Well, as, as you often say, worst contingent. Uh, I'll say the last piece on this is that you, you talked a lot about Slavansk. Kramatorsk is going to be much, much harder, right? It is the headquarters for the JFO, the, the Joint Forces uh, of Ukraine, very well defended. So um, if Slavansk is hard, Kramatorsk is even harder, right? So Ukrainian forces are pretty well fortified across that entire pocket. And they've done a really good job of defending against any Russian advances from Azum. They are much less better prepared to defend against an advance from the east, which is now potentially going to open up if Russian units break through Bakhmut and Severs. I see Slavyansk and Kramatorsk as uh, one overall fight, to be perfectly frank. And I suspect that Russian units, if anything, are going to try to flank south and try to break through towards Kramatorsk as well. 
So I see it as a sort of salient or an development that they're going to try to develop. In the same way, if you could kind of mentally picture Sierra Danielsk and Lusikshans and how that pocket fell, I think we'll try to, to a certain extent, recreate a fight where they attempt to take both. And so my view over this is that the Ukrainian positions are very well fortified and defended, but there is very little information to go off of, just from my perspective, and there's a lot of intangibles you can't account for. So can't possibly predict how that, how that next battle is going to go, just to say that that is the next phase in this war. Now, there is also another river crossing that they're going to have to do, right, before they can complete this. Is that, is that you, you think is going to present a challenge for them? Well, no, potentially. They made a river crossing just northwest of Lusikshans, so I'm not necessarily sure about that bit of it. Uh, I think their biggest challenge is that they've made very little progress in trying to push from Azum, which is the kind of northern front of that fight. And then it'll be a big question of whether or not they have the actual force availability to press in and get across Severus Bakhmut towards Slavyansk and, and make that fight happen. The other end of the coin, though, is that the Ukrainian military no longer has to defend this very large, drawn-out pocket and is able to actually defend a fairly concentrated, limited pocket and can bring more capability in terms of what the West has offered and supplied them to the fight, meaning they're not stretched out between Slavyansk and Lysychansk and what have you, but they're actually defending much, much less terrain in that fight. Right. Now, speaking of force structure, our friend Rob Lee had an interesting tweet. Um, I think you retweeted it as well, uh, where there's now indications that the Russians are emptying out the prisons in some places, uh, looking for people with military experience and letting them go into the fight in exchange for presumably a lesser sentence or uh, forgiving their sentence. This reminds me of what Stalin did in World War II. Uh, to create penal battalions that he would send to the front from folks in the gulags. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Is, is that uh, going to be effective at uh, beefing up their forces, that tactic? I think it's a very small number of personnel. I just highlighted it. I don't think it's a big part of the effort, but it's just sort of one of those tidbits that shows you that the Russian military is very heavily pressed for manpower. What's going on behind the scenes is that they're creating volunteer battalions. They don't use conscripts. They want to hire up men. They're offering um, a lot of money, a tremendous amount of money. We've talked about this many times, Dmitry. This is like towards 250,000 rubles per month with a 200,000 ruble signing bonus. It's a significant amount of money. Let's say five. Yeah, for, for, the, for, the, for those that need a conversion, that's four, four grand a month. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, let's just say it's five times an average regional salary. It's significant, okay? And you're going to have men that are potentially interested in this kind of deal because the Russian economy and the Russian GDP is obviously in a declining trajectory for anyone who's followed it. So there will be, there will be men interested potentially in it. And they've dramatically opened up the sort of age bracket that they're willing to recruit within. And it basically drags from 18 to 55, I think at a bare minimum. So long story short, they're trying to create these battalions. They're trying to create them incorporating existing force structure because they have to get the equipment from somewhere. So they're pulling the equipment from warehouses and maintenance bases. They have officers from the current force. And to some extent, they'll put them together with all these volunteers they've hired up. And they're going to 
essentially deploy these battalions, but they're, they're sufficient to maintain the Russian forces in the fight. They're not a force capable to enable rotation of Russian units currently deployed. As the Russian military is still not a place where you can take the current units on the line that have been fighting over the spring and now into the summer and just replace them. Neither is the Ukrainian military, to be perfectly honest. So both forces are suffering from a degree of degradation, and they're both trying to come up with solutions as to how they can sustain themselves on this battlefield. Uh, and the prison thing is a very minor aspect of it. I don't want to overplay that. What I would say is that it's very clear that the Russian military is trying to put together hired-up contract servicemen, and there's a competition for them. Wagner's competing for them. The regular Russian military is competing for them. And they're offering a lot of money for people to deploy, to be willing to deploy in the form of volunteer battalions. And there's evidence that they're trying to create a kind of force structure to make this sustainable, like army corps that are potentially going to funnel these personnel into the fight. I don't just have, I don't have enough data or enough evidence to talk more about it. But you see that the Russian military is clearly grasping at ways in which it can sustain this war. Now, we had a lot of questions on Twitter, and a bunch of them concerned HIMARS, right? We okay. have now eight uh, launchers that have been deployed to Ukraine, another four are on the way. And we've seen the Ukrainians use them quite effectively at this point, hitting um, ammo depots uh, far behind the, the Russian lines, hitting command and control centers as well. I've lost count of how many they've hit just in the last week alone. Uh what effect do you think that is having on the fight? And uh, particularly if the Russians will have to push their ammo depots further back to be out of range for the HIMARS, um, how is that going to impact their logistics? Well, it's definitely going to slow the Russian military effort down. And the way they've organized so far is going to create big problems for them in terms of sorting out how they support the war effort while trying to then distribute the logistics and the ammo depots and the like. It's not an easy thing for them, to, for them to solve or to answer. But HIMARS in of itself is highly effective system, but it's no wonder waffle either, and I just want to be frank on that. Like, capability is one aspect of the puzzle, and it tends to be most effective when you first introduce it to the battlefield. So long story short, uh, from my point of view, I think I've seen Ukrainians use it in a very effective manner over the last two weeks. The Russian military is going to do what they can to adapt, and probably its effectiveness will degrade over time. How much of an impact it's going to make is yet to be determined. That's just a very honest answer. Usually, when new capabilities are introduced to a battlefield, they're most effective early on, and then opponents begin to adapt over time, and so their effectiveness degrades at some point, depending on how, might, how many systems they get. And presumably, this is going to become a top priority for Russian drones and other air assets to find those launchers since there's only going to be 12 of them and destroy them uh, from the air or through other mechanisms, right? Yeah, well, I think ultimately they're going to get about 24, but it's not just launchers. It's a question of sustainability of supply of ammunition and maintenance and, and sustainment. And these are all things that over the last two months that I've watched. And the issue has not been Ukrainian ability to employ new weapons. They're actually quite good at it. The issue has been Ukrainian ability to both sustain and maintain them in the fight, which is a different conversation, and our ability to uh, supply them and, and what have you. Uh, and these are, these are just 
Well, these are other questions pertaining to national level limitations in terms of ammo production or uh, the problem of Ukrainian military attempting to switch to an entirely different set of systems. It takes a lot of effort to train uh, and maintain and sustain the battlefield. It's just not easy. And uh, a lot of folks believe that enthusiasm alone maybe can get it done, but it's just not the case. Uh, they're trying to make a monumental shift in the capabilities they're using to a very different weapon set. As we've talked many times, it's all about logistics and maintenance, and those are hard things to do, particularly when you're getting systems that um, you don't have a lot of expertise with. Now, what is going on in the Kharkiv area in the north and in Kherson? We're seeing now the Russian propaganda ramp up about Kharkiv really belonging to Russia in the same way that they're, they've been talking about the Donbass and you need to take that. Do you think their appetite is increasing in that area? And um, what, what do you make of the Russian counteroffensives there? And then in Kherson in the south? What do you make of the Ukrainian counteroffensives? There's been some reporting, which the Ukrainians now apparently walked back from the economists, that the Ukrainians may, may be within um, a kilometer or two um, with, uh, from, from the front lines. Um, I'm sorry, not from front lines, from Kherson border. Um, so very, very close. Um, not quite sure if that really is reality or not, but um, please tell us what you're seeing. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I'll be very frank. Um... Those are two very different questions, but if I look at Kharkiv, uh, I would say that that strikes me as a pitched battlefield, and one in which Ukrainians are trying to push Russian artillery away from being within the range of Kharkiv, and Russians counterattacking to push it back within range, and that's sort of back and forth. I don't see it especially decisive, and I see the outcome there is kind of indeterminate. And uh, the only thing I can say is that I don't think Ukrainian military has the forces to push northeast towards uh, areas where they could sever the Russian ground lines of communication down to a zoom. That's the only thing that I would say is relevant from my point of view, just because they don't have the force availability to do it. Kherson is a very different conversation. So if we look at Kherson, we're talking about the part of Kherson that's west of the Dnieper River, which is where Ukrainian military has been conducting a number of low-class counterattacks. They've made incremental progress in a positional uh, war where they're trying to gain more. Probably, and this has been my hypothesis, because they, they may want to conduct a real offensive there down the line and retake that territory and retake your own city. Um, what can I make of it? So the distance between Kherson and Nikolaev is not very long. It's a very short distance, and it's very hard to make sense of the claims. But suffice it to say... I think the Ukrainian military has made incremental progress along a line of Ukrainian forces that is stretched. Sorry, I apologize. Along a line of the Russian forces that are stretched relatively thin, trying to hold a large buffer west of the river. Right. This is not a real offensive. It is just an attempt to gain position. At some point, potentially, the Ukrainian military will try to pursue an offensive there. That's one area that I think is very lucrative just because of the terrain, the density of forces, and the strategic significance of it. And, and I, think, I think we've discussed this before. But uh, at this stage, what they've made is very kind of small incremental gains, but nonetheless, each one of them gets them closer towards their objective, which is inching towards Kyrgyzstan City. Now let's talk about your favorite subject, Snake Island. Oh, Lord. Uh, no. No, I disagree. I believe this is your favorite subject. <laughs> All right, let's cover it briefly because obviously the Russians have abandoned it. The Ukrainians have famously 
placed a flag on it and, and filmed themselves uh, putting up a flag on the island. Um, we, we've talked a lot about how the island is indefensible. But, you know, the one thing I do want to cover, um, which, which we really haven't talked a lot about, is that the SIGIN capability um, may be the reason uh, of, uh, on the island, maybe the reason that the Russians really, really were trying to hold it uh, so desperately and, and losing so many assets in, in, in those attempts, because it is very close, of course, to Odessa, but it's also very close to the um, uh, to, to, to Romania. And if you want to have signal collection on U.S. Na uh, US bases in that part of the region uh, um, and uh, see what NATO is up to, it seems like it can be a pretty good um, capability uh, for that if you can place enough SIGINT uh, resources in that particular area. It's also fairly strategic because um, the... Um, uh, the the river empties out uh, in the basin uh, right across from Snake Island as well. So what do you make of that, that that could be the reason that the Russians really, really wanted to keep that and, and lost so many uh, troops and uh, equipment trying to keep it? Wait, which part? The second post thesis? I mean, yes. yes. So long term, sure. But uh, islands as tiny as that, which are principally rocks, are completely impossible to defend. And those of us who do defense planning and wargaming know this very well, which is why I've said, I think, several times beforehand uh, in our discussions. I, I always saw that position as untenable for the Russian military and that they would ultimately have to withdraw. And it was just not a sustainable position for them, both because the Ukrainian military could obliterate the island literally from their own mainland and also contest the uh, sea lines of communications to it. So that being said, yes, I thought it was potentially a very lucrative position for the Russian military down the line if they could supply it and if they could reinforce it and if they could, they could deploy capable electronic warfare, Elon significant and other systems on it. But ultimately, what they had on there wasn't all that significant. It was a couple of Torum II, some Panzers, uh, I think an R-18 uh, acquisition radar and it wasn't anything high-end, probably because they knew that they might not be able to hold on to it. So Ukraine retaking the island is relevant because that island sits along a maritime well, route. Hold on, Mike. I, I want to clarify. Did they retake the island or did they push the Russians off of it? Uh, do, do you see fortif Ukrainian fortifications and troops on the island now? Nope. But I would say they pushed the Russian military off of it and they got as far as, you know, Planting one flag with special forces on it, which, fair, is not necessarily retaking it, but I think it's sufficient for them just to get the Russian forces off the island and trying to make sure that they don't right. come back. Be be because they have the same issues as the Russians, right? That It's impossible for them to defend it from Russian attacks. Well, they can, they can sustain the resupply at much easier because it's much closer, but overall, yeah, it's the same issue. Do you remember a long time ago we had one of these podcasts? And uh, I don't want to bore people, but I suggested that that island was the subject of a long-term dispute between Ukraine and Romania as to whether right. or not it was really an island or a rock. Yep. Yeah. So uh, it's much closer to a rock than it is to an island. And the amount of ter terrain on it is very, very low. It's a very small island. So small that Romania spent a long time arguing that it was a rock. And a court of arbitration eventually chose to split the difference between Romania and Ukraine. 
So without everybody dropping off this podcast now out of sheer boredom, all I will say is that, yeah, it's not a very defensible piece of terrain. All right. So let, let's talk about something else. I published a long thread early in the week um, about the blockade, which, you know, I, I've been talking and you've been saying this as well, remains a huge issue for Ukraine um, in, in terms of their economic viability. They have to break the blockade. And so far, all the negotiations with the Russians that Turkey has been leading have gone nowhere. I, I frankly don't see a reason for why Putin would lift the blockade. Uh, given that it is a huge trump card for him in continuing to pressure Ukraine and the West and preventing exports of grain and other um, materials, uh, particularly iron ore and coal and other things that um, Ukraine is able to produce. But uh, one of the things I suggested, I'm curious for your thoughts on this, is now that you have HIMARS uh, with um, the Ukrainian military and they're showing their ability to use them quite effectively, if you arm them with attack MS missiles, longer range missiles that have about 300 mile range that you can uh, deploy from HIMARS, you can actually have Ukrainians from Mykolaiv area hit Sevastopol and the Russian base, uh, naval base there and threaten their ability to resupply the Black Sea fleet, um, their subs and, and uh, surface ships that uh, are docked there or have to dock there to get resupplied. And the threat of uh, those missiles hitting Sevastopol, and you probably have to uh, show them actually in use, uh, could potentially be a chip that you can trade with the Russians uh, so that um, they would lift the blockade. What, what are your thoughts on this idea? Is it crazy? Wait, which idea? The, the Ukrainian to, to get, that we need to give attack MS missiles to Ukraine so that they could actually threaten uh, Sevastopol. I mean, it's kind of possible the outer edge of the range of those missiles, but from what I understand, we're not giving those missiles to them. Sevastopol is about 180 miles from Nikolaev. The only reason I know that is because I literally just looked it up on Google Maps as you were talking. And so I'm fairly confident in that answer. And so that would mean that they would have to give the missiles that have up to a 300-kilometer range. So with that in mind, I don't believe those are the kind of capabilities that are being provided to Ukraine at this point. Right, but should they, you think? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm not in the, hey, which capabilities we should supply business. My view of it is that the Ukrainian military's probably first and foremost priority should be two areas, which is defending Slavonsk and Kromatorsk and making sure the Russian forces are exhausted in their offensive there, which is the key set-piece battle of the next two months. And secondarily, focusing on retaking Kyrgyzstan. And there's a reason for it, which is, if they are able to not retake Kyrgyzstan province writ large, but they're able to retake the part of Kyrgyzstan that's west of the Dnieper River, then they control everything west of the river. And if they do that, then this whole Sevastopol conversation, no offense, doesn't matter. The significant bit is that they can then ensure that the Russian military does not have a, an opportunity or a perspective uh, way to pursue a second campaign, a second campaign down the line where they try to seize the southern coast. And as long as the Russian military holds territory west of the Dnieper River along the southern coast, they can always consider the prospect of a secondary campaign down the line to try to take Nikolaev and Odessa. So that's the yeah. only thing I'll say about that. That's my view on well, it. That's, that's what I think the party should be.
Yeah, and by the way, I misspoke earlier. The, the range of the missiles is 300 kilometers, not miles, about 190 miles. Uh, but uh, you're talking, you, you're correctly talking about the, the pursuit of uh, an attempt to take Odessa, to take Mykolaiv, that if um, the Ukrainians retake Kherson, all of that goes out the window, if it's even uh, possible even today. But I'm talking about the blockade, right? If the Ukrainians retake Kherson, it won't have any impact on the Russian ability to continue the blockade of um Ukrainian ports. Well, so it won't have a bl- an impact on the blockade of Odessa per se, but it will have a lot of significance for the Russian ability to project military power writ large into over southern Ukraine, which is the economically significant part of the country. So uh, it doesn't solve, it doesn't answer that question. You're quite right. And there's no good answers to that question. And the people who propose military solutions to that question, I got to tell you, none of them are pretty. Just as an analyst who does this for a living, um, they are not great or easy solutions to the problem. Well, I just proposed one. But let, let's move on. So there was an interesting article by Pavel Luzhin, who focuses on defense affairs, Russian defense affairs for Riddle. And he did a pretty extensive piece on the ability of the Russian military industrial complex to reconstitute its combat losses, particularly looking at tanks and um, armored fighting vehicles, which he estimates, uh, given the current losses, so not projected uh, if the war continues, but current losses and not taking into account the um, export controls on chips that the Russians are suffering from, but just looking at their capacity to reconstitute those, he believes it'll take them four years to rebuild uh, what has been lost on the aviation side, the planes that they've lost. uh, He estimates it will take them three years and the most um, significant one, I thought, was his estimate on the precision-guided missiles, which they've been firing at a pretty extensive clip um, since the start of the war, about 2,500 that they've launched against Ukraine now. He believes it will take them 10 years to rebuild those, uh, again, assuming that they can get the chips uh, parts for them somehow through the black market or through their um, own. They have one fab that can manufacture uh, some some uh, chips at legacy nodes. What do you make of that article? Do, do you buy those estimates? Do you think that they're too low, too high? Any thoughts on that? So first, he's a bit more optimistic than I have been. I've typically said that the Russian military at this stage is behind one state armament program, which is about five years, not four. Second, there's obviously a tremendous amount we don't know, which is how long this war is going to go on, how much the Russian military is going to lose in this war, their stockpiles and reserves were of key components in the run-up to this war and what their what their capacity is for getting these other components outside of U.S. export control. Here's what I'll kind of say, from my point of view. I think the biggest deficit is obviously on armored fighting vehicles. I think they've safely lost about five years' worth of production and modernization. And they can probably yank a whole bunch out of storage and it'll take them a while to upgrade and modernize them. But they're going to mobilize production, which I don't think Pavel takes good account of. I've, I've read his article. There's a couple there's a couple good claims there, but there are also some claims to the extent of, well, if Russians work triple shifts, it will only increase their production by 20%. And my view of that is uh, I, I don't think that's right. Um, and also, what I've seen of the Russian defense sector is that despite some pretty early claims in this war that they are having problems with XYZ, all those weren't true, and they were almost entirely on the civilian side. I'll give you a good example, Nature. There was a story very early on into the war 
the Rolvagons of Wood, which makes tanks, uh, was having trouble finding a particular type of bearings for rail wagons and trains that they make, which is the civilian side of their production, the commercial side of the production. Hence the name, Rolvagons of Wood, like they make rail cars. Okay. Uh, that was spun into a Russian inability to make tanks or modernized tanks, which has not been true at all, just to be frank about it. And what I've seen on the whole in the Russian defense sector is that they've been hiring up people to run multiple shifts, which suggests that they believe they have the components for accelerated production and for mobilized production of PGMs, of equipment, what have you, at least during this year. Now, you may, it's probably fair to assume that they have some years of production that they're going to burn through, but suffice it to say, they're not, they're not slowing down. They're actually hiring up people. So I suggest they probably stocked up components for maybe a couple of years of production at least. Okay. My basic sense of the situation is that depending on what we're talking about, they probably lost a year to two of production in aviation. That's fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters. They probably lost four to five years of modernization of armored equipment, looking at their losses and the scale of them and what their production kind of averages look like. And on PGMs, we don't know, which is they spent a lot of their stockpile of long-range, conventional, precision-guided weapons, but I have no idea what they have in terms of electronics on in reserve. And I also have no idea what they can produce at a triple-shift rate if they were really you know, mobilizing production. But let's assume that to an extent they can probably replace this or some part of it over the next three to five years. I'm sorry, it's a very unsatisfactory answer, but I'm just highlighting what we don't know about the Russian defense sector, what we don't know about the reserves they had, and we still don't know how much they're going to lose in this war. So it's a lot of uncertainty. There was another interesting question that was asked on Twitter, which is, what do you think, and to some extent, obviously it's, it's not precisely knowable, but what do you think, the Russians are paying for this war right now versus what the West is paying. Obviously, uh, you know, here in the United States, the con Congress has authorized $40 billion of aid to Ukraine. Uh, $20 billion of that is military aid. Uh, we've already sent, I believe, up to $8 billion so far. Other countries are chipping in as well. How sort of symmetric or asymmetric is the spending? Are we actually spending more than the Russians, do you think? Uh, on this war uh, in terms of the aid that we're sending. And obviously the Russians are paying for their troops and for the equipment that they're losing and so forth. The Russian defense sector has announced an 800 billion defense in ruble, oh, sorry, an 800 billion ruble increase in defense spending. So that's going to take them to a roughly 50% increase on procurement. Russian GDP is going to contract. And the Russian defense spending is going to increase as the overall GDP contracts, let's say, somewhere around 15%. So with, with those numbers in mind, it's going to cost the Russian government quite a bit. It's going to cost them, at minimum this year, a 50% increase in procurement and probably a substantial increase on defense spending overall. Probably almost a, uh, roughly a doubling of defense spending on this year as a share of GDP. That's my kind of get rough guess in it. Interesting. Last question, Mike, and we'll wrap up. But um, what are you looking for in the coming weeks? Um, what signs 
are you looking for either on the Ukrainian side or the Russian side um, that you, you, you think are critical to understanding where this conflict is going? So kind of my view of the last month or two is that nothing has happened that's catastrophic for either side. I would say neither forces remotely near collapse, but both sides face pretty significant force availability problems and they face problems uh, derivative of the degradation of their forces, right? The Russian military is fighting with these volunteer battalions and reserve units and mobilized LDNR personnel, the Ukrainian military, it has a lot of territorial defense forces and is plugging in individuals to replace very significant losses in their brigades. And and these soldiers have very little training. I mean, they're soldiers in quotation marks only. So what am I looking to in the coming weeks? A sustained Russian offensive against Slavansk-Komatorsk, a large set-piece battle, and a Russian attempt to turn that into a salient. Probably incremental Ukrainian gains in Kherson, west of the river, in an attempt to set up a better position, uh, writ large. And then I'm trying to assess kind of the impact, whether it's of HIMARS, which many have seen. Okay, it, it's blown up Russian ammo dumps and command and control points, but I'm not a technology fetishist, and I don't believe that any tactical capability has that kind of, let's say, a decisive level of impact. I'll save that for the Twitter experts who are super enthused about HIMARS. But what I will say is that I'm looking to see what the medium to long-term pipeline looks like for training Ukrainian forces and for giving them military capabilities such that they can conduct successful counteroffensive, which is a much bigger lift than I think a lot of people appreciate. It's much more than providing any one particular weapon system. Uh, or ammunition. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I know that's an unsatisfactory answer, but it's late on Sunday nights. It's the best I can do. <laughs> that was great, Mike. Uh, thanks again for lending your expertise to this podcast. Uh, always a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure we'll be talking in the coming weeks as this war progresses. So thanks again. Have a great evening, everyone. Yeah, thanks for having me back.